Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Uh, awkward. Uh, awkward. Waiting, waiting for Father Mike to sing something really dumb. <laughs> no, Off key, where's the, I need a pitch pipe. I was told by a friend who's a uh, teaches recently, I said, teach me some advice about teaching. And he said, you got to be comfortable with awkward silence. Really? And I was like, I'm not at all. And he's like, yeah, you got to throw out the questions and just... Oh, between the questions and the... See, now, he's teaching, here... he's teaching Shakespeare to 18-year-olds. I would think it's a little different. Oh, I thought you were some... talking to Joe Hayton. He's no. teaching German to grad students yeah, or something. Yeah, no. So... Well... Well, welcome to the podcast. I, I got to come up with something new. Hey, this is a podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Father John this and Father, Father Mike, Mike in Rome, uh, greeting you all here on a uh, quiet, rather warm evening, uh, right in the beginning of Lent here, just kicking it off. So, just had a wonderful time with Father Charlie. Hope we didn't scandalize him too much. I think he enjoyed it. Oh, I think he liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm thinking, uh, I'm kind of preoccupied by this thought teaching, of the, yeah. the teaching thing. Yeah. Um, we're going to go back to teaching. Are you going to use a lot of questions? See, I, over here, I say I ask that because over here, they just lecture. Yeah. They don't ask questions. No. And there's no feedback between the class, you know, that's, maybe that's just like this Roman environment or our level or whatever it is, but no. it's straight lectures. And I'd like to do more asking questions, but I forget how that works. I had a, um, um, I'm sitting in on this class. It's a class for undergrads. I'm just auditing it. It's all my college kids. It's taught by Dr. John Boyle, who 15 years ago taught me Theo 101, and is awesome. He's one of the best teachers I've ever heard. Yeah. He looks like, did you see the movie Apollo 13? Uh, yeah. So he looks like one of those guys in the 60s or 70s working at NASA. He's got like a thin tie and kind of the the 50s glasses, (laughs) which are now back in style. Yeah. He looked the exact same 15 years ago. Is um, it? He's kind of ageless, you know, one of these ageless professors. He makes comments about, like, Sandy Colfax. Oh, yes. And this, I'm watching these students. I'm like, I love it, you know. Um, but he's one of the best just natural teachers. And I'm taking this class because I was interested. He's, he's, it's called the City of God and the City of Rome. So he's pairing Augustine's City of God with Virgil's Aeneid. And I was like, that's really sweet. That's a cool course. That's a cool I, course. I'm jealous. Yeah. I want to take so, that. Um, but what I'm finding is, it, yes, this is going to force me to finally read The City of God in its entirety. But uh, more importantly, I'm just watching him teach. He's a master. Yeah. And he's really good with the questions and the students. And um, he doesn't just talk at them. Um, and I think I, I'm just watching that. But he also doesn't, he also knows how to draw it out of him. That's part of the, his brilliance. So I don't know. What are you no, going to th- do? That's do? how you learn. I think that's it. You've got to just imitate the best examples that you know. Um, but I haven't, I don't know, I'll have to get back into it as I get closer to teaching. I think you just got to teach. You just got to do it. And then, and then you find your style. Yeah. Marion Apple told me with her kindergartners, you got to hold the reins a little closer at first. Oh. So that maybe that's, Ooh, that's like her that. advice for, you know. Well, I did, I taught that course last year. Everybody, on, you know, who listens knows that. Um, but and it they, was. And they all did very well. It was a grammar course. So it's not, I don't think it's like most classes. Yeah. You know, where you're asking questions, interacting. I mean, they, of course, can ask questions, but it was basically, let's go through some practice exercises yeah. and 
teach a little lesson every day. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, it was some experience. I also think it's, it's you know, if you're teaching Biblicum propedeutic students, they're going to have a lot of incentive. If you're teaching 18-year-olds undergrads, it's it, it could be a real mixed crowd. So, Well, that's the thing. When we go back to the seminary, I think you have a mixed classroom. Yeah. There's some guys who just love it, and they just want more and yeah. more you know, teaching yeah. about the Bible. And there's others who are say, I don't, I'm not that interested, you know? All right. And you know who's going to be the worst student you're ever going to have? The guy who's going to be like me. Oh, I was bad too. Oh man, I was the worst. I think it's a punishment for those of us who, people look at this, oh, this is a nice, nice opportunity. I'm like, I think they punish us because we're going to have to deal with guys like us. Yeah. Who just it are like, I don't, I could care less what you have to say. And it's just like, ah, <laughs> I don't know what to say to you. So I, f- I actually have a real sympathy for my professors um, because I was like, I was a terror, terror yeah. in the classroom. If you're seven years old and you're kind of a disaster student, that's understandable. You're a second grader. When you're like 30 years old, that's just not yeah. okay. So I don't know. You can just say arrogance and ignorance are their own punishment. Oh, there you go. I like it. I like it. Now, how's your Lent going? Uh, it started. You're 48 hours in. <laughs> You're doing pretty well. I mean, I, yeah, it was good. I Okay, so we started with a little pilgrimage to Santa Sabina. It's uh, the first church on the 40-day pilgrimage walk right. here. There's there's a station mass pilgrimage. I think we've told you about this. Of a new church every morning for 40 days during Lent. And this was the beginning one. So we went over there. That was a great way to kick it off, you know, to mark the time. The ashes on the head. Um there was something really powerful when he said, repent and believe in the gospel. You mean when he put the ashes on your forehead? Yeah. He says, repent. Is that what he says? Repent and believe in the There's a couple different gospel. options. I think, I think that's so. it, yeah. I mean, I'm a priest. I should know this one. Um, it was just powerful to me. Like, yeah. do I believe? Do I believe yeah. in the gospel? That was, that was a cool question to ask myself, you know? I mean, that's something, hopefully, that we can say yes, but there's always, like you know, an invitation to to the depth. And it was so simple, too. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what it, So that's kind of been That was way more theme. profound than my um, meditation on Ash Wednesday. Mine was somebody at breakfast after that Mass told me, because I am, like, notoriously bad. I was notoriously bad in the parish for getting ashes on there, right? Because I wanted it to look perfect. Uh-huh. And I remember one time I, I gave this, like, beautiful sentimental homily about my sister and her son and something had to do with ash wednesday and she was bawling and she came forward and in this like profound moment i'm putting ashes on her forehead and i completely destroyed it and it was like all i mean her nose was completely black (laughs) and then i found out it's really hard to put ashes on makeup oh did you know that yeah foundation it's just you can't penetrate and i was like ah maybe i just don't terribly suck at because you need the oils i think from the skin right and then it sticks father nicholas callahan Master wizard, knowledge of all things. He told me that, and I was like, oh. "That's like the greatest thing I think I've ever heard." So, ladies, maybe well, a little less foundation Italy, on Ash Wednesday. I don't know if you've seen this. They just sprinkle it on the top of your head. Right. They don't even rub it into your forehead like we do. Supposedly, the cross on the forehead is an Irish thing. Oh, again, okay. Callahan. He's born in Ireland, so I don't know if we can trust that. But I don't know. What did Father Evan Coop said? I had it. Mine was the shape of a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> I. uh yeah, I. This has been a funny Lent. If I can just share with you, um, I uh, go back five years. I'm at CU, 
University of Colorado, and I'm preaching. It's about Lent, and we're about in this time in, and I'm preaching to all the students, and I'm telling them, I said, I said, don't have lame penances for Lent. Get serious about Lent. Do something awesome for oh, the yeah. Lord. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I said, don't do these lame penances like give up alcohol on weekdays. <laughs> and I hear this kind of like gasp from one corner of the room, and it was Whitney Lyle who told me right before Mass that she was giving up alcohol oh, on weekdays. On weekdays. And so I've always felt bad about preaching about that. So this year I had all my muscular Christianity Lenten penances worked out, and I was ready to kick some serious eight. And uh, I was going to be a saint by April 1. I called my spiritual director, Father John Walsh, on Saturday. He just went, boom, 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 killed everything. And he goes, Nothing. John, do you know what you're going to do for Lent? Give up alcohol just on weekdays. <laughs> and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. So I called Whitney, and I was like, you are not going to believe. Oh, my boy. lame, lame, unimpressive Lenten penance as I drink this wonderful gin and tonic on the weekend. No, alcohol it's wonderful because you haven't been weekdays. drinking all two days. <laughs> yeah, I made it. It was great. 48 hours. So the point of this, if, especially if you're a seminarian listening to this, be careful. Be careful the examples you use in your homilies because God will use it to no, I'm, spite I'll you. No, I'll definitely use them. I mean, if it works like that, because the example I thought of was like, well, okay, I won't, I'll give up spinach for Lent. Right. I won't, you know, you find, you find all these things that you don't like anyway. I, I like I'd give up ice cream. You yeah, know? Then it's, <laughs> you don't even like. Sweets, I don't yeah. even like sweets. Yeah, you know? But then, yeah, hopefully that would come back. Oh, I can't. My spiritual director. The one thing you have to do is give up spinach for Lent. Oh. But I find, as a spiritual director now, especially with young people, I'm usually the guy pulling pulling things back. Um, if you're a faithful Catholic, it just has to be checked. You know, it's just good to talk to somebody and just say, "Is this yeah. reasonable?" And Frankly, that's what I needed. I needed a good spiritual director to just say, uh, you're not that awesome. Sorry. Yeah. You think you're Hercules, and um, you're, you're, just, you're not that awesome. So why don't you just do this? And he had, he had a couple other spiritual things as well. It wasn't just that. But he, there, there was a lot of times, I think, growth and holiness is, it just doesn't look that impressive. It's not, it's not sexy. It's not flashy. It's not, it's not something you want to share. And it's exactly what God wants. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's slow, and that's the hard part. Right. It's like, it's better to take a really, really little thing that you can do and do well than it is to take on a big penance and then fail and then confess and get back in and fail and then confess and what, you know? There's a Father Jeff Heward is one of our favorite companions up in St. Paul, and he has that great line. He always says, true change is slow change. Mm. True change is slow change. We need to create yeah. a book of just like Heward aphorisms. Like the guy has just the best. He is, yeah. He's, he's a one-liner guy. Like, yeah. yeah. He's just he's just chock full of them. The but I love that. Saying. True change is slow change. I kind of hate that. I, honestly, like everything in me thinks, no, that's terrible. We need to make it faster. But there's there's some profound wisdom in that. So if you're already flailing in Lent or your spiritual director gave you some really lame, uh, reduced... Reduce price uh, for Lent. Well, maybe it's what God wants. Or if so. you're still figuring it out, like I, I've got these little bitty resolves. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad I'm I content with it. I think it's the right thing. Like I've discerned and Holy Spirit, but uh, they're just not not a whole lot. And I'm still wondering, like, am I supposed to do something else or more or whatever? But we'll see as time goes. 
I think that's. I mean, it's just like walk around town for twenty minutes and pray. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's pretty minimal. I'm not like giving up my, I don't know, com- computer for Lent or something. Right. I think that the, uh, I, and and again, what my director was kind of pointing at. This is not the topic of the only podcast, eat by the fennel way. or something. <laughs> fennel. <laughs> only eat fennel all Lent. Were you the one Lepsock and you and I went to? Um, Bari to see St. Nicholas on the East oh, Coast. Oh, yeah, we and, had fennel. And we had fennel digestivi. Digestivo, yeah. And that was one of the strangest Liqueur. experiences of my life, but I, one of you guys liked it, and I forget which one. I think it was probably me. It was probably you? Yeah. Lebsock. Uh, speaking of Lebsock, real quick, and then we can get to the topic, because this actually isn't on the topic. Um, I was thinking of Chris. Uh, so there's this um, neo-Gothic church built in like the 1920s, which in Rome is like, that's like extremely contemporary. It's if you take, um, go past the Quirinale Palace, go outside it like you're going towards the wall, the opposite direction of St. Peter's. There's a cool coffee shop over there called Pharaoh. This is not the one near the river. Mm-mm. Other way. Right on the river, there's no, a that's, Yeah, that's the one. This one is the other way. And this is like super off the beaten path. Okay. Because when you live in the historic center of Rome, they somebody recently told me that Italy is the most tourist-visited country in the world, oh. Rome is the most tourist-visited city in Italy, and we live next to the Trevi Fountain, right? Oh yeah. So if you want to get away I mean, from tourism, I don't ten think ten months of the year it's just mad. I could just crowd surf right <laughs> anywhere that I need to go. <laughs> I need to go to the grocery store. You could just keep on passing me. Yep. Thanks, guys. That's hilarious. So, anyways. One of the things I like to do is get to the outskirts and actually be around like real Italians. And I ended up in this church on Sunday. Um, I don't even know the name of it. A beautiful, beautiful small Gothic church. They had Eucharistic adoration. And um, they started, um, and then they prayed the rosary in Italian, and then they went into evening prayer. But the opening hymn, this old Italian nun starts strumming on the guitar. And I was like, I've heard that song before. I was like, what is she, and it was just this kind of like acoustic jam for a bit. She was actually oh, quite yeah. good before they started singing whatever you know the hymn was. And I was like, "What is that? What is that? Fish?" No, I was like, "I think that's nothing else matters by Metallica." Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was Sweet. like, "If Lebsock was here to witness this, he would be going <laughs> crazy because it literally was. I think it was the." The music for this hymn, anyway. Oh, so yes. It took it to the next level. No, so. they didn't sing it like that, did they? They did not, no. It was, it was just, just a, the guitar. Like an intro. It was literally just set her the, riffing Set on, the mood just to kind of warm, kind of get everybody rolling up, warming up a little bit. Ooh, I but, like this woman. Yeah, listen, can, where can I find her? Listen and take to her, Nothing Else take Matters and Colorado. imagine a bunch of Italian nuns singing that as the opening hymn for evening prayers. Quite funny. So, hello, to the topic. Um, I am holding in my hand... The brilliant thesis presented to the Faculty of Theology of St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree in the Baccalaureate of Sacred Theology by Reverend Mr. Nathan Goebel. Oh, yeah. This is the Baccalaureate thesis, which Father, now, Nathan, I, Father Nathan You did know he hasn't theology. talked about this? Never talked about this. Wow. So when I was home for Christmas, I, I go on these kind of blitzkriegs, uh, Blitzkrieg is the German. That's what they did in World War One. World War One. World War Two. World War One. One where they one. the lightning yeah. war, right? Blitzkrieg, and they yeah, would yeah. they would blast through the line. And sometimes I do that with life in general. And uh, 
kind of a paradigm. And I decided it's I was like, like a sprint. It's like a bit of a sprint. And I was like, I'm going to get rid of. I'm going to go through everything I own right now in this house because I have some stuff left over my parents. I came across this this uh, license or this uh, baccalaureate thesis called Cruciform Eros, a defense of Eros in Priestly Life by Father Nathan Goble. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I've never read this. So I threw it on the plane and I took it with me and I read it on the plane back. Yeah, nice. And it's fantastic. He's a great writer. I, I read that, uh, what was it, four years ago? When were they ordained? Three years ago? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, Soon after it was written. I think it's been four so years. So I don't remember the details well, I, but I might be able to talk about it. Oh, I tell you what, he's a great writer. And I'm not just saying that because he's our friend and he's on the podcast. He wrote this in the spring of 2014, so yeah, four years ago. Mm-hmm. He wrote most of this in my parents' basement. Oh, really? Yeah, so he, See, that part I don't remember. he did a real funny thing. This is very Nathan. He, uh, he kind of put it off, put it off, put it off, and then he just did it. He moved into my parents' house. It must have been spring break. Um, he lived there for a week. And he just worked in the basement. They just gave him the basement, and he just he just cranked this thing. 30, 35, so 40 was, pages. The, the location was chosen for the sake of the the writing of this. To see I that. think it was so that meals would be provided for him regularly. Oh, nice. Yeah. So my mom's upstairs cooking. I like his style, though. I, there's something about changing your place. Yeah. You know, not, yeah. not go doing this where you study all the mm-hmm. time. Just go somewhere, and yeah. then it really can come together. That was a brilliant move, and he tells a very funny story from that week because he said, I learned a lot about your parents, and my parents do listen to this podcast periodically, so they'll laugh if they hear this. But he said one day he had finished writing for the day, and he was upstairs. It was probably 6 o'clock, and uh, my mom's cooking dinner. And they're talking, and, and my mom's Chicken saying, and dumplings. Right, chicken and dumplings. That's the check, check ducks. You like, she always talks about, you know, Father Mike really likes that um, chicken paprika. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she remembered that. You like that sure one. Sure do. That's another Czech delicacy. But she's cooking whatever for dinner. And uh, she starts cooking up the Brussels sprouts. And he goes, oh, some Brussels sprouts. And she, and she goes, oh, let me tell you what. Daryl hates Brussels sprouts. He's going to walk in that door, Nathan, in five minutes. And he's going to say, Brussels sprouts, barf. And then she keeps working. He goes, that was weird. She just like literally said this is what yeah, he's going to yeah. say. No joke. Five minutes later. He walks in the door. Hey, honey. Gives her a kiss. And he goes, Brussels sprouts, barf. <laughs> she literally verbatim oh, said yeah. exactly what he was going to say. And he goes, that's, that's a married couple for 35 years, yeah. whatever it is. They, they can literally anticipate not just the sentiment, but the actual words of the couple. Everything. So whenever we have the Brussels sprouts. The two shall sprouts, become one. He always says, Brussels sprouts, barf. So anyways. Uh, he wrote this thesis while he was there, spring of 2014, and I am very honored to present it very briefly tonight, uh, the main points of it. Oh, that'd be great. I like his style because uh, when you look at the index, well, first off, when you look at the title page, this, this cracks me up. He quotes in, in the German, right? Friedrich Hulder in, in the German. Oh, is that this right? is from the poem Socrates and Alcibiades. Uh, Alcibiades. And he always does that uh, drunk history mock up yeah, he Alcibiades. likes Alcibiades. He's big into Alcibiades. That's one of his characters. I never figured out where, because there's all these these personas in the Goebel world, right? It's it's a whole yeah, world. Yeah, he's got a whole yeah, cachet of characters. Yeah, the Goebel Golisaria, like it's just, he just collects these things. And somehow Alcibiades made his way into it. And that's from symposium, the Symposium of Plato. Yeah, yeah. And Holderin has this. So symposium is, just to give you some background, because Nathan is playing with um, 
terminology that comes from the Greek world about love. Right. And um, Symposium is a a discussion about love that happens, that Plato is writing with uh, Socrates asking questions and in dialogue with various characters about what is love, just asking that question. Right. Yeah, so the symposium. So so basically, Goebel, uh, yeah, he quotes Holder in here, and I'll come back to this in a second, in the German, which cracks me up, and von Balthasar on the first page, which I love. But then he basically says this. He says, what we're, do- we're going to do is we're going to study the kind of love known as eros, which we've talked about before in the podcast, desirous love, um, which is first developed in Plato's symposium. And we're going to do it in three different parts. Number one, in Plato, in the symposium. Number two, in Dionysius, the Areopagite. Oh, yeah. The Divine Names, who's a 6th century um, Syrian mystic. You also heard of him known as Pseudo-Dionysius. I had a guy in my class named Denise. Did you ever meet Denise? Denise. And I'd always call him Pseudo-Denise. And, <laughs> and that was a very nerdy theological joke. But um, he he's like a that? great he guy. That. He liked that. He's a great guy. He's a priest in South Africa. He'll probably be a bishop someday. But yeah. um, he's back in South Africa. And then thirdly... Uh, Benedict XVI, in his encyclical uh, Deus Caritas S, talks about um, Eros as well. And then Goebel makes a kind of his own creative synthesis and application to priestly life. Mm -hmm. And what's awesome is the whole point of it at the end is he's saying, Eros, desirous life, which is oftentimes falsely equated as sexual desire, Mm -hmm. but true desire is a part of priestly life. Right? Desirous love is not something that Desirous just love, d- yeah. disappears when you become a priest and you just get And I in, forget yeah. how he really does that. I was I've been asking this question lately just like for my own for my own life and yeah. walk and like where is that it, I mean yeah, well, we'll get into it. I mean, it's well, just like here I I just interact with books all the time. Right. It's very inhuman. Right. But I remember like asking these questions of like, what is love and what does that look like and yeah. how do you do it, right? And all that stuff. So it's a very provocative topic. Yeah. Um, and I think... To talk about... Yeah, we're asking this. Erotic. You know? yeah. yeah, erotic, basically. Eros. Eros is where we get the word erotic. Yeah, erotic love for in any state of life, but in a particular way in the consecrated life, whether religious or priestly state. That's pretty radical. So it's love as desire, uh-huh. as opposed to something like philos, uh-huh. which is love, like a friendship love, right? that is maybe, I don't know, like accompanying somebody or supporting them or, um, I don't know, it's different than desire. I don't desire my friends, but I um, there's love there. It, right. It's like friendship can be called love. There's a commitment. There's a delight in being around them, all these things, but it's different than desire. Right. So, yeah, I think the probably the most classic contemporary uh, writing on this is C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves, which I'm sure you've read mm. at some point, where he lays out these four different Greek understandings of love and how they work out in kind of the Christian life. Storge, Eros, Philios, and Agape. Right. So Storge is like familial love. Oh, um, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, eros is erotic or desirous love. Um Philios, friendship, love, um, this kind of relational thing. And then agape is like sacrificial, selfless love, right? So one Which of the... Is not, I mean, is that in the symposium? I don't know if you'll get to this. Oh, uh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure if... Uh, agape is very important for the New Testament. It's very important right. for Christians. Right. 
But I'm not sure if it was for Greeks at the time. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. Anyway, we're trying to get to I think Eros. I, I would expect, I would if I'm just going to put that out there, hopefully nobody who knows anything about this topic is listening. Um, I would say Agape would surface in Aristotle and the Nicomachean Ethics more than it would in Plato's Symposium. Okay. Because I think Plato is really interested in Eros, and I'll explain why, because of the relationship to beauty. We'll get into yeah. that in a second. But that's very important. Desire that's very and the important way that for we interact with exactly. romance. That's and that's hard for that's that's central for the Platonic mind. So, anyways, I love this. You're going to read Holderin. German, right? Lieb das Lebendigste, right? Love what is most alive. Mm-hmm. He quotes this um, line from Holderin. I don't know how, how does he come across these things, right? I think probably from Garonsky. Garonsky, probably. Guess. But Goebbels, he's different because he's got this German name, but he's he's really an Italian at heart. And I remember Garansky and I were at the... Uh, um, there's this wonderful shrine in San Luis in Southern California. The Stations of the Cross go up to this. This is the first town that was established in Colorado in the south, almost in New Mexico. And we were looking at these statues, Goebel and Garansky and I. And I said... And Goebel would describe what he saw in the statue. And I'd be like, I got nothing. And he'd be like, he's Italian. He sees he sees things differently, and I've never forgot that. Ooh, you know, so I think yeah. that he he gets that. But yeah, he stole this, quoting the German. Come on, you know, uh, from Gronsky. So, love what is most alive. Um, that's kind of how he frames the whole mm. the whole thing here. Um, when we talk about the Christian life, we're talking about love, right? The heart of the the revelation of Christ is that God is love, right? From John. And uh, that love means encountering that brings us fully alive. And um, that's where we have to start, always. We have to return back to that point, because the the post-Christian world that we're living in has despaired of that point. They see uh, a cold set of formal precepts and obligations, um, and we've lost the sense of what love really is. And the Trinity reveals what love is. And... uh, that love is what brings us most alive. And Holderin, who himself is a very complex figure in terms of worldview, um, is speaking to that in a poetic way. Love what is most alive. Let your mm. heart go into what is most alive. Um, I jokingly quoted um, Augustine's love and do what you will to Augustine, uh, um, Austin Lickey recently. Have you ever heard that line from his, whatever, I don't know where it's from. Yeah, yeah. It's often misquoted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Um, he fired back. This is the context of that, and it was totally oh, I true. I do remember. Yeah. Maybe that was on the podcast where he, yeah, yeah, and it's wouldn't um, let you get away with the misquote. Mythbuster. It, it's to- he's a total mythbuster, absolutely. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I think that we love uh, what is most alive. Okay, well, love I'm, what is most. Alive. I'd like to see where this goes because Eros almost strikes me as a passion. You mm, know, yeah, like we desire the things. That just catch your eye. That that just that one finds beautiful. Right. And it's not. This is saying choose to love. Right. Something rather than something else. Right. Um, and I find that interesting. That yeah. This isn't like be captivated by things that just you know yeah just the whole the, the idea of the will and being able to choose what drives your love. This particular kind of love. Because right. I, I think it's easier for me to say well. With friendship, you're choosing something, and it's less about, um, well, I guess even that kind of finds you or mm-hmm, whatever. But mm-hmm. 
Anyway, so. Well, in the interest of Eros for this topic, could you pour me a little more gin and tonic? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're the best. I'm going to keep talking, though, as you go refill us here. Um, is it a weekday? Goebel, it is not. Goebel relies heavily on um, an article by uh, David Schindler, which is called The Redemption of Eros. So he's trying to redeem or recover. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Um, this is Agape. This is not Eros. I'm making him serve me as he... Uh... So um, this article is, is, is part of the whole project of saying Eros has a really important role. Um, and uh, here's a line from uh, David Schindler. He says, um, Although the terms Eros and Agape may set into relief different aspects of love... In the end, they do not represent different kinds of love. There is ultimately just one love, which a variety of dimensions that are all necessary in order to sustain the full meaning of love. So eros and agape are not ultimately different loves. They're different dimensions of the one form of love. Does that make sense? That's what he quotes in the introduction. That's Schindler. Mm -hmm. And that's on his own authority, or is he... Quoting somebody from the... Um, that's a good question. I'm just reading from the paper here, and uh, he seems to quote on his own authority. But Goebel says... No, I mean, I, I think it's, it's easy for a Christian to say that because we say God is love and love is one. But it's not easy. And this is why I like this paper, because Eros is not in the New Testament. Ooh. It's, in the, it's in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. Okay. But it's not in the New. They never, so it's, they not never... that, it's not that simple. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it never talks about romantic love. I mean, you got things like the Song of Songs in the... No, no, Old Testament. Old Testament. In the Song of Songs, Eros... Yeah, I'm just thinking of yeah. like... the. But there's got to be something. Not in the new, though. Ephesians or something marital. Nothing. No? And I know this because Goebel and I did kind of similar topics. I was interested in um, the second guy we're going to get to, Dionysius, the Areopagite, pseudo Denise. Um and uh, that's what I did my work in, and that's where I came across this. Um, yeah, so, that, that is interesting. So I mean, this it, is a very it's, important it's concept anywhere in human life, but also in the ancient world. So I don't know how much Goebel was familiar with the work in 1940 by a guy named um, Anders Nygren, who was a Lutheran Swedish bishop who mm. wrote a multi-volume work called Eros and Agape. And basically the point of that work was to say Eros does not have a role in the Christian life. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much... But he was wrong. But I think he was wrong. Goebbels got this... Goebel versus Nijin. Yeah, Goebel versus Nijin. We'll see you in South Korea, 2018, Winter Olympics. (laughs) No, it's... um, I think Ratzinger's responding to that. I think that um, Balthazar's responding to that uh, big time. That's where I came across... um, um, this this book by Anders Nygren, I think is how you pronounce it. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm so bad with languages. He's a Swede. Forgive him. He's one of your, you know, No, no that's fine. I mean... But basically, I, uh, the point of that is to say that um, he's a great theologian, and he's saying this is not of a place. You know, he's coming out of kind of the Lutheran tradition. And uh, so this is, this, is, this is a radical thing. I think, it's, I think what Goebel's saying is true going from Plato to Dionysius, who's the Christian mystic who appropriates Plato into the Christian, kind of gives it its first expression. Mm. And then this amazing 21st century expression in Benedict XVI, where he, I mean, when have we ever heard a pope talk about Eros? He takes it on in uh, 
God is love, Deus Caritas est. God is agape, literally in the Greek. Uh, and he talks about eros as well. So, so I don't know if you're going to like walk through each I of should, these. I probably should at some each point. Each of these yeah. arguments, but I. No, I mean, I, I certainly think it's it's intriguing. It, romantic love is. It's it's like really at the heart of being a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you ask people what's the best thing in the world, they most will probably say falling in love. Right. You know, some people might say um, children, like having children. Right. Or some people might say, um, I don't know, ice cream, if that's their only, like they've never been in love or something, you know. But I would say, generally speaking, most people celebrate this, and most cultures celebrate. Not so much, not as much as like, Contemporary American culture is very influenced by romanticism and all kinds of factors that I, that's that glorify romantic love as if it's the only thing. Right. And there are some other cultures that are much more sober about this stuff. Yeah. You know, like arranged marriages and their sense of love is more about commitment to each other, or it's about like you know, it's nice that they kind of work out together yeah. and fit. We have this obsession, like rom-coms and right. Disney, <laughs> and um, about fate being involved in this whole like falling in love thing. And yeah. um, that emotion of being in love is being like the most important thing that a person can find or whatever. So I could see some people being skeptical about it and just saying, yeah, yeah that's for maybe weaker people yeah. like a stoic would say no eros is just a silly little weak cra- right. craving like Absolutely. you would crave chocolate yeah. all of a sudden or something pause quiz show yes what was the last movie becca messel watched before she entered the convent i know this wedding singer the wedding singer you you made me think of rom-coms oh yeah rom-coms we were going to um Oh, we're going to go on a bike ride, actually. I don't approve of this, by the way, of this Becca, wedding scene. Becca, thing. we miss you. I was not there. No. I had no We were going to go. In this. So I was living in Schloss Goebbels, and uh, Becca came over, and we were going to go for a bike ride. She forgot her helmet and her shoes, and so it was just like, okay, we're not going on a bike ride. And then Goebel came back, and Goebel was had just watched some funny thing on The Wedding Singer, so she's like, we need to watch The Wedding Singer. And uh, so we did that afternoon. And uh, I was like, I'm really sorry. This is the last movie you're ever going to no, watch. probably. But she cried at the end, and she goes, I always cry in rom-coms. So anyways, um, I like what you're saying. I think there's something about the romance, um, and I think that the whole point of this paper is to fight for you don't lose that when you become a Christian. In fact, you, you gain that in a deeper way. And consecrated men and women need to, to live that particularly. So here we go. Here's the thesis of the whole project. This paper intends to demonstrate that God is man's supreme vocation and that love can be expressed as eros to God and neighbor, as God has eros both for himself and for creation. This is huge. This is like I know, that's a big claim. I'm I'm listening hard. I love it. This eros is uniquely manifested in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word who fully reveals man to himself. Hence, eros, purified and redeemed in Christ, is essential to humanity. Eros is purified and redeemed in Christ, is essential to humanity. All mankind, whether those in the lay state or the priestly state, can and must love erotically as Christians other Christ. 
That's yeah. what he's setting up. Well, this is, defend. and so it's all built on the presumption of God. There is eros in the Trinity, right? So it, that's kind of like everything else followed from that, right? Then you have the incarnation, and that right. brings eros and humanity and God into contact, and right? Okay, so let's break this down for a second. But I think so, that's yeah. like, yeah, I think it, it sounds like that's what Benedict had, right, had done. So he the, makes that bold claim. So there's a number of people who would say that there is no such thing as Eros in the Trinity. And they can make that claim, because God does not, does not tell us that you know, in the Scriptures. But in the 6th century, this really interesting character who studies at, um, at the Academy in Athens, right before it closes, in this, um, who's from Syria originally, and who's kind of a mystical-type character, very platonic in his thinking, but also deeply Christian, um, really pushes this and says, no, God is erotic in his disclosure and manifestation, if we properly understand it. This After, is Dionysius, the Areopagite? Exa- you got it. So he, he, this guy writes under a, a pseudonym of, is it Acts 15? Oh, geez. 17. 17, where uh, Paul's preaching... Yeah, he preaches at the area in the Areopagus, right? Yeah, and Dionysius the Areopagus there. Yeah, he converts. He converts. So he he's this guy in the sixth century is writing under this name. That's why he says my name is pseudo, or he becomes known as pseudo Dionysius. But he's actually pseudo. Pseudo means the the fake one, but it's like just to distinguish that this nobody's claiming that this is the same guy who is in the right who lived six hundred years earlier. But he he is saying. and he's going hard to the mat on this. He's saying, God has Eros within himself. And after Augustine and Aristotle, Aquinas quotes more than anybody, Dionysius the Areopagite. Mm. So he's a huge player. This guy is like, he's, he's, he's a big effect on Maximus the Confessor, who's both East and West, John Damascene, Aquinas, into the whole thing. Um, Dionysius, is, he's, a, he's a big time dog. How so, did we get into these Syriac masters? Because I remember, I know Larkin wrote on Ephraim, right? And maybe because they're all interested in beauty in a particular way. That might way. be it. Yeah. Okay. And they're they're fascinating that way. They're more inclined toward the aesthetics. Yeah. So, anyways, let's go back to Plato. Let's go back to the fourth century uh, BC, um, because Dionysius is and. Uh, Platonic thought is there for the first, you know, six centuries of the, Christ- of the Christian faith, and as it's kind of unfolding, we're using Platonic understanding, Platonic words, and Eros is one of them to help us express what is human, but also what is God disclosing of Himself. So, here we go. This is uh, Herr Gobel writing uh, on uh, Plato's Symposium. He says um, the object with which Eros is in relation is beauty. Eros desires to possess beauty for itself, to have some relationship to it. One modern writer even suggests that the very semantics of the word eros must suggest this as such. And then he quotes this very long, boring footnote. Along with beauty, Socrates says that goodness would also be desired by eros for its own possession. So hmm. basically what we're saying is that eros, erotic love, is not sexual love. It's not pornographic. It's not the way we think of it. Mm-hmm. It's deeply connected to beauty and goodness, which are transcendentals of being. So everything that is reveals itself, according to this, as having certain qualities. And beauty and goodness are some of them. So what, 
what stirs but eros it's, it's, is beauty. It's an, it's an attraction, but it's not necessarily this romantic right. love. I mean, the, maybe the word romantic is is just kind of a misnomer. It kind of leads you astray. This is really the attraction of beauty and goodness. Right. So when I see the the night sky with all these stars, or the mountain, recently I was in the mountains, and it was so beautiful, I wanted to stay there, or I wanted to connect with that right. place or whatever. Right. And this happens even more profoundly with people, because people are even more good and more beautiful. I think of the um, that moment up in the mountains, looking up at the stars, and you know I've talked about my experience of climbing Mount Rainier and seeing the star, seeing the headlamps up above us, the climbers above us, kind of blend into the stars. I think of Dante mm-hmm. coming out of uh, hell, out of the inferno, and what is the first thing he sees? He sees the stars mm. uh, as the purgatorio begins. All of these things are. Um, Ways of describing what beauty does to the human heart. Um, it just draws us out of ourselves. You know, mm. without eros, um, there's no movement out of us. It, it makes us ecstatic, which means in the Greek word to, uh, to stand outside of ourselves. You know, it, it moves us out. Um, and that it's so it's a very dynamic thing. Um, and that's very different than, than kind of our typical understanding of kind of this base sexual thing. Uh, Goebel talks about this here. This is on page nine. Not as if you have it, but if you want it, email us and we'll send it to you. Uh, <laughs> if the author approves. Yeah, you got to get permission to publish. Modern counterfeit eroticism seeks to possess the beautiful by means of sexual frenzy. The difference for Plato is that true eros desires to be, posse- to be possessed in the beautiful. Let me say that again. Modern counterfeit eroticism seeks to possess the beautiful by means of sexual frenzy. Frenzy. The difference for Plato is that true eros desires to be possessed in the beautiful. So it's actually about losing yourself in the beauty mm. when you're standing on the mountaintop and you're looking up. Oh, yeah, I like that. Uh, I want to be a part of this. I want, to sh- I want to be in that beauty instead of I want to take that beauty and possess it for myself. Yeah. If you would have taken your phone out and snapped a photo and then snapchatted that or instagram that right you're possess- you're in a sense you're tempted to possess that not to say everybody's doing that when they do that or i'm doing that when i do that but just to stand and behold that it's almost like you desire to you desire union with that yeah it's connect- come out of connection yeah, yeah exactly there's this great line from goethe that um Goebel quotes mike rap or not mike rap uh mike humble mm-hmm. <laughs> used to always talk about goethe you always talk about Gautier. Do you oh, remember yeah, Gautier, Gautier, the artist? <laughs> you would do that just to piss off Joe Haight. So, oh, I love Gautier. He's the best. <laughs> Gautier said this, Beauty is not so much a fulfillment as a promise. Beauty is not so much a fulfillment as a promise. So what he's talking about here is when you're skiing at Chamonix and you're looking up at the stars at the end of the day, um, you're, not, you're not experiencing fulfillment as much as you are a promise that I'm being drawn into something, but I'm not yet in union with that. And that's speaking of something beyond creation. Yeah. I mean, I, as a, as a Christian, as a Catholic, I can get very excited about that because I, it's a promise that has some sort of fulfillment, has some sort of end. I, I think if I weren't, 
if I didn't believe that God could fulfill that promise, it would seem like a, a cruel tease. Right. Which is fun because I think Goethe and others in his... You mean Gautier. Gautier. <laughs> uh, what do you... Gautier. Uh, they struggled with this. Like part of angst, of human angst, is that the, even the best things like beauty are just a tease. Right. They're like an invitation to something you can't get or yeah. can't arrive at. And um, if you don't have God, um, then, yeah, it just becomes like a this, this kind of frustrating element of, I want to connect, but I can't because I don't know what to connect to. Like a mountain, I can't ultimately connect to. Right. I could say something. I could imagine, that, yeah. oh, me and the mountain, the mountain... We, we, we can, well, but you, you don't. You have to connect with a person. So the creator of that mountain who is made known in the beauty and the majesty of the, the experience. So that promise is something that can be fulfilled. Right. I can ultimately connect with the mind who thought of this, the creator who is expressed by this. You know? Yeah. One of the miracles, I think, of providence is that the Greek, the Hellenistic mentality was able to realize how intelligible the world was and uh, able to come to these conclusions without revelation. Um, they were able to realize, you know, the world is beautiful and this beautiful, this beauty is pointing beyond it yeah. itself. And likewise in the 18th century with, with romanticism, which begins Goethe, Holder and all these guys, it really renewed theology, even within the Catholic Church. Um, I'm doing a lot of work in this area now, hmm. and um, but they they kind of despaired of it. Po- it points to something, but we don't know what that is. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's kind of that's the tease. Yeah, it's like it's drawing me in just to leave me hanging. Like right. I don't you can't ever be satisfied. Right, and I think that's a lot of people's experience, and that's where as Catholics we have to step in and say. No, but it is pointing to something. And we have to live that somehow. Yeah. I don't know how we do that. Have, yeah. another, have another job. Well, and it's a, no, it's an invitation to connect with a person who can love you back. Right. You know, you know that, that mutual love. Right. Love what is most alive. You know, going back to the Holder and quote at the beginning here. How do, we, how do we orient our lives as Catholics towards that so that people just are captivated by... There's something different here, you know. They're living different. Mm. Um, they're penetrating deeper into something. That's I, I guess that might be the great thing. You and I are going to be forming the next generation of priests. It's like how do we teach them to do that? Just to to live in such a way as to reveal to people who are lost in the world that you can penetrate deeper into these realities, and uh, that you're doing it maybe badly, but you're doing it, you know. So. I mean, I think that happens. It's like we're talking about these abstract things like philosophy and love in the ancient world or in the writings of theologians and things. I mean, that's a kind of abstraction that is um, seeking and searching for the most beautiful and profound things rather than the the easy and superficial things. Like uh, we could have gone out to the jazz club, like I've resolved. Uh, I know. Or, um, <laughs> we didn't help. You know, I could have watched clips of the Olympics all, all night. Right. Th- these are beautiful things too, but they're not as, they're not the things that are fully alive. They're not the things that are most profound. 
Right. And I think it's hard to come to an appreciation of those things, right. of the deeper things. And I think it takes more time at the mountain, or it takes more time reading, thinking. It takes discipline of life. And so I think, I think we're doing it. I mean, not that we're doing it brilliantly, but there's something about the Christian life that automatically starts to point to more profound things and saying, these are worth falling in love with. Yeah. You know, don't let your love get yeah. thrown away and squandered on the cheaper things. I think um, one, of the, one of the hard things to remember is the uniqueness of, the, of what Christianity has done to the world. And I was brought back to that by Dr. John Boyle, awesome professor, in his course, because he was talking about Santa Sabina. So we went up the Appian. What hill was that? No, that's the Appian Way. What was the name of the hill? Santa Sabina's up on I know, I'm thinking. Sorry, anyways. We went up a hill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we walked past the Boca, the Boca de la Verta, and on the right is those ruins. Do you remember that? Uh-huh. Up by the, by the Tiber? Yeah, yeah. Those were the original, that was the original port of Rome. Ah, okay. And there was a temple built there to Hercules, who supposedly came through there at one point, and to Fortuna, the goddess Fortuna. Oh, so that their endeavors would be successful. And, yeah, and the uh, ones kind of travels and the ones... And that, that spot was important because that was originally a marshland where uh, Romulus and Remus were found. Oh, really? Right there. We walked past that just And then the suckled hill. by the wolf? That's right. And uh, so what Dr. Boyle was explaining was, and he was teaching this to the students, and again, masterful... Um, the guy, he doesn't even know such thing as podcast exists, but so he will never listen to this, but amazing. He was saying, you have to remember what's magnificent about Christianity is that what 1% of the philosophy class of Rome and the ancient world was meditating on became possible for everyone. Mm. For the worker, the dock workers of who were castrating themselves for Fortuna at that spot out of some kind of pagan thing, Augustine is writing to them and saying, you don't have to do that mm. because you have access to these deep mysteries, uh, to this eros, you know? Yeah, amazing. Amazing yeah. to think about. So, Yeah, the access. Yeah. All right, I am way off track at this point. Um, we got to wrap this thing up because it's already well, can 45 I ask? minutes. Yeah, okay, so 15 minutes. Um, it's, I think the may, perhaps the fullest expression of this recognizing the the beauty and the goodness of another person is this full commitment of your life of marriage. And I think that's why this has always been associated with romance. Um, I think it's kind of novel, and um, I, I am impressed by it, and I think it's creative, and um, uh, that Father Goebel tries to connect that with the priestly life. Right. But I'd like to hear, like, how that how that works with priestly life or marriage? No priestly life. Yeah. Okay, we got a little. I mean, ways. if it's possible of God, I, you've got me convinced. If it's possible with God, it's possible for Jesus. This is not just romantic love. Yeah. Um, but it does have something to do with attraction and connecting. Okay, so let me say one thing about Dionysius, one thing about Benedict the Sixteenth, and then I'll try and answer your question. Okay, sound good. Because your question is ultimately the one part of the paper that I didn't really prepare, which is oh, chapter no. four. I know. So, okay. So well, I could read it. So I real guess. quick, um, 
Yeah, I'll give this to you afterwards. It's worth reading. Um, so we're back in the 6th century. Um, Dionysius the Areopagite is a young Syrian Christian who's studying Plato and trying to say, how does this work with the Christian faith? And he looks and he says, well, God himself must have eros within him. And what is stirring that desirous love of God? Because we see this exitus, we say in the Latin, ekparethane, is that the word? Coming out of oneself? What is the exitus? Do you yeah, pereomai. Pereomai, yeah, ekpereomai. Yeah, he's coming out of himself um, into the economy of salvation. Because remember, what God freely discloses himself, right? That's the, that's the great Christian claim, is that we, we don't know God. Um, no one has known the Father except the Son, and he reveals himself. So something moves God into that, and the way that Dionysus describes that is it's eros. So Goebel says, Father Goebel, the theologian, the great, he says, uh, to put that matter briefly, all being derives from, exists in, and returns towards the beautiful and the good. Whatever there is, whatever comes to be, there is and has being on account of the beautiful and the good. All things look to it, all things are moved by it. So God's movement into revealing himself is that his love, his erotic love, is stirred by his own Trinitarian beauty, and that moves him into revealing himself. Hmm. That's Dionysius the Areopagite. That's pretty that's pretty epic. Oh yeah, I think so, it's good. Yeah. Moving on though. It's another way to look at something that's also expressed in like generosity or creative right. thought. Right. But this beauty and this attraction of beauty. I would like to pause for a second though and say that eros is scary in the Christian life. Like it 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 freaks us out because it's kind of uncontrollable, you know. Well, that's why I was talking about passion. Yeah. It's like uh, especially I'm not sure priests, I can like, steer this all the time. Like let me let me just give kind of a stark example. Like 30 32 new college kids show up and I'm like I really want to support them and get to know them and love them and uh, help them achieve heaven. But I'm also like a pretty broken human being, and I'm like, what? What is this? Is my ego and my vanity and my typical BS? You know, and that's really hard to sort out. But some there's some there's some real desire stirring in me, mm. and then there's also all of the craziness which is in me. Yeah. And, I really That's, love myself. Yeah. And I want to impress myself right. by the way that So I, I want to preach really well because quote I want them to, you know, be honored by be them. saved, but I'm also like no, I want them to like like me, you know, and that's crazy. Uh so eros er, it's a lot easier to live the Christian life. It's a lot simpler to live it without eros. But when you take it seriously, it gets messy. And um yeah, it 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 doesn't it doesn't simplify things, but I think it's it's more true but, to our humanity. Right. If if we didn't have the eros, if you weren't, I mean, if it was if it was all everything under our control, we'd be kind of like robots, mm-hmm. and also just like it would be passionless. Right. Don't you think? You oh, yeah. know. I mean, maybe that word is too philosophically technical, but it's like um, a lot of emotion comes from right, and and a lot of humanity comes from this. Um, being drawn to things, being surprised by that, being, um, yeah, not uh, not being in total control. Yeah. Um, so I think that the, uh, I think that 
we got to skip Benedict, by the way, and just go to 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 Gobel here. The final chapter, pastoral charity and divine eros, which is basically to say, how does uh, how does erotic I think love work? Benedict, can I just like mention? Yeah, yeah, rough, I think Benedict go. just takes it into the tradition he and does, just says, yeah. okay, Dionysius is not just one theologian mm-hmm. among a hundred, but he was right, and he's endorsing this as pope and kind absolutely of bringing it into discussion with the more of the Western. theological tradition. Right. So he says, you know, uh, love by its nature is a communication of one's innermost being, man's innermost being. Benedict is the best. And uh, that implies both an ascending love and a descending love. Mm. Eros is the ascending love and uh, agape is the descending love. Mm. That's right out of uh, um, uh, Deus Caritas. So that moves us to the final re- reflection, which is to say, okay, you're a married man, married woman, or especially a priest, consecrated woman, lay state, religious state. What does this look like? Well, Goebel tries to explain that. And he says basically that eros is something uh, that you can't choose. It's something that happens within you. And it's, a mo- it, it, it's like it begins the movement um, which needs to terminate in charity, in agape, in sacrifice. But it, it's something that starts in you. And it's not just um, an affective movement. You know, It's not just like anger or fear. Yeah, emotional. Yeah, exactly. It's not just emotion. So um, I, I'm trying to look at what he's doing here. He's basically, he'd be horrified listening to this. I really hope he doesn't listen to this. But... Um, he, he basically says, he goes through, in terms of the priests, he goes through the three different munar of our life, the teaching, sanctifying, and governing aspects, and talks about the different ways that we live it. But I think ultimately is that um, we, we don't hear Christ talking about his own eros, but we hear him talking about his splagna gets moved, right? You're a Greek, mm-hmm. Greek guy, Father Charlie, if you're still here. Um, and you see these situations in the gospel where um, he's doing something, and then his splagma, literally his bowels, are moved. Yeah, and then he the does seat, something. And the then seat he, of emotion, and then like, he does something else. And I think that's the kind of the Semitic understanding of of eros, which is to say, like we don't really understand how this thing works. And Plato is saying the same thing in his symposium, like. There's something in man, desire moves him out of himself into the other, and it begins this whole kind of fascinating and complex um, engagement of how does moral engagement of how does he how does he play that out rightly, but it but to deny that of himself yeah. um, is to deny something of of his own humanity. Well, and I think the lesson for for the priest is just um, to stay. I don't know to, to to be fully human like Christ, you have to to maintain an encounter with beauty. You can't uh, I don't know become so uh, rational or functional or not not be moved by things. You know you have to find those things that really move you and allow yourself to kind of be open to the um, the desire in life. Like what is it that I what is it that I desire, and how can I find those things that are the, the most yeah. real and the most life giving, most alive? 
This might be the best uh, line that I can finish with. This is from uh, Mary Kankas, Erasmo Mary Kankas, Leva Mary Kankas, who is one of our favorites. He wrote a three-volume um, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, which is now out of print but is absolutely amazing. And Goebel quotes this at him saying, um, or this is Goebel, but he's kind of paraphrasing it. He says, The priests redeemed Eros, analogously like a pilot light, must be burning brightly so that the coursing breath of divine Eros might be quickened in his heart. So I think that uh, mm. ultimately we can conclude with um, Eros, whether in the life of the married man or woman who's listening to this podcast, life of the priest, consecrated woman, lay woman, or religious, it's the pilot light. If you don't have that mm. little light, burning which is terrifying because there's gas and it's like this thing could blow at any moment you know yeah yeah but the pilot light has to the pilot light of eros has to be lit um so that the 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 as he says the core the coursing breath of divine eros might be quickened in his heart Ah, that's pretty oh it's poetic it's beautiful beautiful it's also like you know this this really comes from in the end it really comes from an encounter with god it's just like Mystical prayer, uh, commitment to contemplative prayer. The, the, the mystics are always talking like this mm-hmm. about uh, being poetic, being um, emotional, about being uh, connected, and, and they're talking about beauty. So uh, mystical prayer, life of the sacraments, these things are ways to keep your desire alive. And, um, and I think that's, that's helpful for um, anyone who's, you know, a Christian longing to live uh, the Christian life. We uh, see married couples are always looking to keep the passion alive. Mm-hmm. How, do they, how do you keep the passion alive? You know, you, you go on the honeymoon, you have the few years as young as a young couple, but then they want to keep the passion alive. Well, that's the same kind of principle. How do you do that as a just as a human being yeah. in, in your encounter with the world and with God? Yeah. And that might be that might be the best line to close with, which is to say, um, eros is essential to human life. Um, desirous love, how do you cultivate that? You have to keep cultivating it, and you do it through beauty. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, when your spouse has the dad bod and he's not looking that good, um, you have to dig deeper. What's the what's the deeper beauty in there? And you'll find it, and you'll find it in your spouse. You'll find it in your brother priest. You find it in your parish. Um, we have to trust that Christ is working through that. So, Amen. Cool. Goebel, great like job, it. man. Yeah, good work, This Nathan. is a very long podcast. we got to wrap this thing up real quick. So, uh, shout-outs. What do you got? I don't. Nothing. Well, I, could, I, I used them all up. This is the problem with doing two I in know. a row. I know, I know. It's true. Go on, Go ahead and... Uh, I met a nice guy named Colin at Our Lady of Lords, Larkins Parish. And uh, he came into the church last year, and his girlfriend, and they were just awesome. He listens to the podcast, so I want to say thanks for listening to him. And then I wanted to give a shout-out to our old friend, Regis Jesuit High School grad, Stephen Sweeney. All right, Stephen. Who would win. Librarian extraordinaire. He should win. I told him, I said, you are the hero of the day. Save my life. Save my life. I've been looking for this article, this French article from 1927 for, I don't know, six weeks. Oh, you just called Stephen. I called Stephen. You know how long it took him to get it? It's probably three minutes. Sixteen minutes. Oh, really? So he got it and he wrote. He emailed me back. Well, that's had fast. it copied. That is fast. Photocopied, scanned, 
emailed 16 minutes. I was like, you get the gold medal. You sh- this like library, the, uh, whatever the librarian thing is, this should be a, this should be an <laughs> Olympic sport. And you, you have the gold medal. And he wrote back and he goes, I'm wearing it around my neck right now. Have a great day, oh, Father. Yeah. And I was like, Steve Sweeney, you are the freaking man. I know, man. he's the best. He's the best. So we are so grateful to our librarians. You know, I've, have, I've, I've started to sculpt. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually just Play-Doh, but I've started to sculpt. Maybe I'll do a bust of Steven Sweeney. Dude, I will buy that. The librarian. You name your price, I'll buy it. So <laughs> We have wonderful librarians here at the um, Dominican Sisters up in uh, Ann Arbor. They're great. And uh, we're just grateful for librarians because they make our lives very easy so last shout out uh catching foxes if you like banter these guys are the best oh yeah they blow us out of the water i i hear that name all over they would never say that they're friends of andrea's from steubenville i've met these guys they're they're great guys but i actually listened to one when i was back in denver and i was i was laughing pretty pretty hysterically so anyways i think that's it Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is a long one tonight. And uh, keep that love Father alive. Mike, keep that love alive. Mm-hmm.